Thank you, Chris. And for those who have been with us, you know that we're taking a break from our Mark series to celebrate the defeat of death, to gaze joyfully upon the empty tomb and see victory in the hands, feet, and side of our Savior. So, Trinity, I ask you to turn your attention to the, God, to the first letter Paul's to the Corinthian church, as soon as I can find it and pay attention to what I'm turning to. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, remind us of the great victory that is secured for us. Give us a peace that transcends all understanding, and find our place next to our Savior, Jesus Christ. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. While I am death, none can excel, I'll open the door to heaven or hell. Woe, death, someone would pray, could you wait to call me another day? The children prayed, the preacher preached, time and mercy is out of your reach. I'll fix your feet till you can't walk, I'll lock your jaw till you can't talk, I'll close your eyes so you can't see, this very hour, come and go with me. I'm death, I come to take the soul, leave the body and leave it cold. O death, O death, won't you spare me over till another year? First half of the song, O Death, by Ralph Stanley. Wonderful song. I know it sounds not wonderful, but I really do believe it's a wonderful song. Stanley does an amazing job singing it if you like that really old southern drawl. If you get an opportunity this afternoon night, I encourage you, you should listen to it. It really shows death in all of its horribleness. And death is our focus this morning. In all its horribleness. I'll be honest with you. Death is an interest of mine. Not in the sense of sitting in a dark room listening to sad music, writing poetry that's oddly close to Edgar Allan Poe. No, I mean... It's an interest of mine because it is the interest of every person who is alive today. Death has a fascination in this world. It's something all people will experience and all that have come before us have experienced. You would think with that ubiquity of experience, it wouldn't be as focused on as it is. I mean, after all, everybody brushes their teeth, right? We don't have books and songs and movies and concepts about that idea. And yet, death looms in our mind late at night. It flashes in front of our eyes on the news and in movies. Our lives are plagued by brief brushes with death through family, through friends, or just close calls, even in our own lives. Even when people speak about avoiding death and doing all they can to not think about it, the avoidance itself shows the amount of attention that they are placing onto death. What are we to do about it? That becomes the question for all humanity. The question throughout time. How do we escape death? How do we defeat death? Can there be victory in the face of death? I'm here to argue for the Christian, yes. There can be. That's what Paul tells us this morning. Victory is secure. Death has been defeated. 
His sting has been removed. The victory over death is in Jesus Christ. That's what he tells us out of our reading this morning. So as we talk about death this morning, let's venture into what some may call a fool's errand. What some may call the impossible. The road to El Dorado, stumbling upon the lost city of gold, perfecting cold fusion. Let's talk about the defeat of death. The pursuit that all mankind has had since the beginning. Since the first time a child saw their parent take their last breath. And we will discover this lost city of gold. We will find the map to defeat death this morning. But first we have to see the human problem. Then we have to hope in the beautiful promise. And finally... We'll get the map. We'll get the key to opening the door of death. We'll get the map to lead us the right way to defeat death. We'll do it through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray at the end of our time this morning we'll be able to look at verse 58. And we'll join with all creation in praising God because of the confidence Jesus has instilled in us. We will become steadfast immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord, even in the face of death. So let's begin at the beginning, the human problem. What is the human problem? I'm sure we could all spend our morning listing plenty of human problems, like for me, why is it that the best tasting foods have plenty of sugar, salt, and fat in them? Seems like a big problem for the healthy-minded or for those who like donuts outside. But that is not the ultimate human problem. It is just an Isaac problem. Though they may be connected in some way. Mortality is the great human problem. Paul says it right in verse 50. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And as I said, death is on Paul's mind. It is our first step in defeating death. In order to defeat death, we need to confront death. We need to see the cloaked reaper. We need to look the strong man in the face. And we need to know we are indeed mortal. One of the most popular Latin phrases is memento mori. Translated loosely, it says, remember, you are mortal. And historians argue over whether it was a mantra said to conquering emperors as they rode into Rome, saying, remember you are mortal, you are not a god. But it's also a concept throughout all history, from Socrates to Plato to the Middle Ages, philosophers, Christian philosophy as well, to art and architecture. You wander around the ancient ruins of Europe, you may find carvings of memento mori placed around there. Remember, you are mortal. You will die. And ultimately, that is what Paul is getting to in verse 50. Humanity, the flesh and blood that we have, will not last forever. We are perishable. We are mortal. As much as we may rage against the dying of the light, the light will still go out. And if you hear a preacher that maybe gives you this word. You won't die, don't worry. Maybe your body will last until the end and you will see the face of Christ. Do not believe them, is what I say. 
Do not believe them. That is not a biblical teaching. Christianity and the Bible guarantee our mortality. The moment Adam and Eve took a bite out of the apple and the curse of God was placed upon them and it said, in that day you will surely die. That is the moment that we have found our mortality. The author of Hebrews goes on and says as well, it is appointed for man to die and after that to face judgment. That is man's lot in life. Those of you who are ahead of me may say, Isaac... Paul says in verse 51, not all will sleep. I go, sure. But all will be changed. All will be changed. These mortal bodies will not last. They will fail. They will break. They will age. And eventually they will just go away. And Paul and the rest of Scripture is very clear. These bodies of ours are not here forever. This is expanded further down in our passage, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We find the reason for death and decay in this life is actually sin. As you can see with my allusion to Adam, the sin that was founded in the garden gives us our first understanding of death. Sin is what brought death into this world. Sin is what has caused us to fall into mortality and watch our bodies and our beloved family members' bodies just age to dust. Each time we see a gray hair appear in the mirror, it's another example of sin reigning in this world. Each moment another wrinkle grows around your eyes or around your mouth, sin is telling you age, deterioration, and death is coming. And if you say, I don't know what sin is, well, good news, Paul tells us what sin is right there. The law given by God, a perfect and holy law, points out all our sins, all our failures, and it points out because we sin and we fail, we will die. Just like all those before us and all those that come after us. The concept and the certainty of death is true for almost all faiths and religions and philosophies throughout time. Buddhism, Islam, Scientology, animism, even Judaism, all claim death of our bodies must occur. Even the weird cults from the 70s, 80s, and 90s had people destroying their bodies so that they could go to heaven. You think of the heaven gate, Heaven's Gate cult that comes to mind. People killing themselves in order to get up to heaven to the glorious place. It is a perspective that all of history has been confronted with. Our current body will not last forever, is what it says. But then we get into our modern era. Our modern era that says the eternal soul is abandoned for strict materialism. Only the body exists. Nothing more can be extrapolated out of this reality. We cannot presume consciousness after death, or anything after death, death, in fact. Instead, we can only presume this is the only time we get and the only body we have. Nothing more will come of it. And you know what that's done for us? You know what the last 200 years have been like? It's actually raised the fear of death even more. The human problem becomes somehow even worse in the midst of materialism. It says there is an end date on everything. Darkness is approaching, nothingness is coming. So the attempt 
to overcome death, to defeat death, becomes even stronger. We need to wrestle harder. And our modern world slips further and further into fear. Because there is no hope but in ourselves. There is no hope but in the strength of our arm. And thus far, there has been no one in the history of the world who has defeated death. It may even be one of the main reasons for the growing mental health crisis is this great fear building up, especially over the last few years with the pandemic and death knocking on our door. Now war breaking out in Europe. Prior to the abandonment of the soul, prior to materialism, humanity feared death, but at least there was a sense of justice, a sense of final reality. Across time and the world, people had an understanding. Though these bodies may waste away, there is something after this. Be it another lifetime in this world, be it heaven in some sense, or be it the absorption of the consciousness of all things being put into one grouping. But not anymore. Now we have the growth of anxiety, because this is all there is. And justice can't be found ultimately. And joy can't be found ultimately. Because this is it. It's nothing more. And this is why we see in our modern era the need to extend life as long as possible, to work the bodies as much as possible, to keep them around, the discussion around freezing bodies, to reanimate them later in life, to pass consciousness into a hard drive to keep the person alive in some fashion, some mind. It's a battle for humanity, people would say. This is how we stay around. This is how we keep ourselves alive to make ourselves relevant. And so even when the body fails, maybe the memory will at least last forever. But yet even our modern mind pushes that down. Author David Eagleman says this, There are three deaths in this world. First is when the body ceases to function. Second is when the body is consigned to the grave. And third is the moment, sometime in the future, when your name is spoken for the last time. This is the modern world. The greatest fear placed upon it. The end of us altogether to never be remembered or thought of again. You may ask how we got here from verse 50. You may say, wow, we've traveled a long way from verse 50. Flesh and blood not inheriting the kingdom of God. This is my long way of showing you the human problem. Death is the great leveler in this world. From the rich to the poor, the powerful to the weak, the intelligent and the foolish. All will face death. And we all have hopes about how to overcome this problem. That means everyone you see in this room, on the street, later this week, they're all dealing with this human problem. They are all struggling, whether it's on the surface or not. They're trying to find an answer, an answer for this problem. So what does Paul do? What does Paul do to help us with this problem? How can he give us an answer to something so strong? He gives us a promise. A promise that may offend some, that may seem outright crazy to those who don't think there's anything past this. But it is a beautiful promise nonetheless. A beautiful promise in the face of human problems. 
our second point. Verse 52 through 55 is where we get this beautiful promise from Paul. He's just given us this enormous problem. Our bodies will not last. Death is coming. But, he says, but there is a great mystery and a promise to give. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. This promise by Paul is one of the greatest promises we could hear. It's telling someone who is dying of thirst, don't worry, there's a water fountain coming. There's a well just over that hill. There's food just past that way. It tells us we will live again. This is not the end. This life is not the end. There is something more after death greets us. We will change. And it's here that we start dropping off some of the previous positions for the answer to the human problem. See, Paul describes a particular shift. Each person will be changed. Our mortal bodies will change into immortal bodies. There's two distinctions there. First, the mortal and the immortal. That's a big shift for our modern era. To claim that there is something to be found in immortality. It throws off the modern view. It says, no, no, no. This isn't the end. There's something more. It's a promise given to you. Don't worry. There is something. The other one is the bodies. We will still have bodies. We will not be swallowed whole into some indescribable deity. Our souls will not become one with the rest of the universe. We will not be transported to another planet to allow our souls to float around free of all encumbrances. Or, as the Greeks would argue, we find our true form by putting away the physical bodies and finding our spiritual self. No, none of those are what Paul is talking about. He says we will have new bodies. Bodies that will not fall apart, that will not age, that will not diminish. They are imperishable. They are immortal. This is the promise made for you in this passage. It's a promise that can only be offered by a few other religions and philosophies. Not many will tell you that you will still be you after death. Not many will tell you that you will still have some form of consciousness and personhood after death. But Paul is telling the Corinthians and us that is exactly what is going to happen. That means all our fighting to stay relevant in this life is nothing but dust in the wind. All your pursuit for a lasting progeny, all your work to make money or grow enormous power, all the sweat of your brow to make a name for yourself in this world is not actually doing what you hope for. This life and this world are perishable. Just as you are perishable. The great buildings you may create, the wonderful power you may accrue, the giant name and lights you have built in this world is going down eventually. If there is indeed imperishable coming, if there is indeed immortality coming, then this world is chaff in the wind. So when you find yourself trusting in your strong muscles, 
or your great intellect or your steady hand. Remember, remember where these bodies will end up and what will happen at the end of all things. But it's even more than that. The promise doesn't just stop with our bodies. He takes that promise of an imperishable body and he addresses the great leveler of the world. The imperishable and immortality turns against the strong man. Death itself is swallowed up in victory, is what Paul says, quoting the prophet Isaiah. This is the other side of the beautiful promise. If there is indeed immortality coming, if there is imperishableness coming to us, then this life is not the only life and death is not the great strong man that we fear. Once we have seen him, once he has put his icy hand upon us, once he has locked our jaws and our feet, and we have changed, raised again at the last day, we know then the truth. Death is defeated. He is swallowed up in victory. He has no more victory. He has no more sting because we have faced death and come out on the other end to never face him again. Promises for you. Do you struggle with the fear of death? Have you had people die that you know? Does seeing the box of a loved one horrify you deeper than anything you can rightly describe? I understand that feeling. I've gone to funerals. I've told many of you my very first funeral, I was 10 and it was for a young child. I've lost loved ones. Pastor knows death intimately. It's a scary thing to know and to try to understand. But if you hear Paul, if you hear the gospel, you can take joy and hope in this beautiful promise. Death will not get the last word. You can be changed, you can take on the immortality. You can put away the perishable. The promise is for you. And I will keep saying that because it is true. The promise is for you. Death can be dealt with in this life. It can be swallowed up in victory. Do not feel the need to bend the knee to it. Do not obsess over it. It can be treated as merely a moment. A twinkling of an eye. A last trumpet blast before the true goodness can be found. At this point, I hope I have set the stage for our final point. Because it is a wonderful promise that Paul has given us. We have found the human problem. Sin and death have their grip on us. We cannot flee from them. We cannot overpower them. And this beautiful promise is given to us. We can move from mortal to immortality, perishable to imperishable. We can watch death swallowed up in victory. But how do we get to that promise? If the promise is not true, what's the point? How do we grab onto that promise? How does it become a reality to us? Our final point, the resurrected Christ. Verse 57, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we can finally find the answer to the human problem. This is how we can finally grab hold of the beautiful promise. It is through Jesus Christ. 
Uh, if you have never set foot in a church before, if you've left churches and you're just dipping your toe back in right now, or if you've been going to church your whole life, this is for all of you. So perk up, open those ears up, stop slouching, listen up. Easter, Resurrection Sunday, all the days that you want to call it, whatever it is, that is the day that we can be sure, absolutely sure that all the beautiful promises have come true. It is the day that we can be sure that we will receive new and immortal bodies. It is the day that we can be sure death has been defeated. And it is the day that we can see the risen Jesus Christ. This is why Christians love Easter so much. Easter is when victory is accomplished and assured. The death of Christ on Friday while hanging on a cross seems to be a great defeat. And it is a glorious moment of our sins being pushed off of us and Christ's righteousness given to us. But the empty tomb on Sunday assures for us death no longer has a hold. And this is what makes Christianity so appealing. I've said so many religions and philosophies claim the same problem Christianity has. Our bodies are deteriorating. They will face death, and they look for answers to this great human problem. And some of them do come to similar conclusions to a promise to get you through the great problem. They promise heaven. They promise new worlds. They promise great benefits, riches untold in this life. Truly glorious promises. But they all have to be worked for to achieve. You need to be good enough to get what's good. You need to die a martyr's death to enter heaven. You need to pay this amount of money to get your ticket to the next life. But only Christianity says, no, no, no. God gives you the promise of heaven and immortality at the price of the death of his son, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ went under the power of death so that he could rise again and show all of us his power over death. This is the most central theme to all of Christianity. And you'll forgive my critique of Martin Luther, who famously said the church rises and falls with justification. I think he was a man of his time fighting against a people who had no appreciation or understanding of sins covered by, by Christ. I say Christianity rises and falls on the empty tomb. If the tomb is not empty, if there was a body still in there, if Christ did not rise again, the human problem remains. And the beautiful promises are nothing but a dream. Nothing but something hoped for. And death becomes far stronger than we can imagine. It's only when the stone was rolled away, only when the risen Christ stepped out, that we can be sure of anything. And Paul makes that same claim. Earlier in the chapter, verse 17, he says, If Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. And he goes on in verse 19 saying, If, only we, have Christ, if we only have Christ in this life and nothing more to look forward to, then we are a people much to be pitied. This is the central idea, church. Easter is the shining beacon in all of Christianity. Resurrection Sunday 
It is not some philosophy or argument or clever wordplay. We're not going to quote Aquinas' five proofs of God. An empty tomb and a risen Savior is what makes Christianity different. Our belief is grounded on a person, a living and breathing person. God himself taking on flesh, dying and rising again to free us from the bondage of sin, death, and the devil. said earlier the resurrection is how we can know for sure our faith is real and our hope is secure. Now many may push me on this. That's fine. That's what the world is. Faith is not grounded on anything real, they would say. Proof of God is impossible. Even proof of a risen Christ is impossible. But Paul attacks that doubt. Right in this chapter, he says, he tells us at the beginning, the story of Christ. He says, Christ arrives. He taught and he was put to death. And then in verse 5 through 7, he lists names. He lists actual people. He says, first, Jesus appeared after his resurrection to Cephas. Appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the twelve. That's the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive. That's what he says at the writing of this. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and finally he appeared to Paul. Lists all these names. Why? Why is he listing all these names? It's to prove that victory is secured. To absolutely convince the people who doubt. The Corinthian church who had doubts about the resurrection of the body and the resurrection of Christ. And Paul says, go. Go talk to these people. Hundreds of people with different backgrounds and perspectives and levels of understanding and belief. They all saw Christ risen. Go and speak to them. Go and be convinced If the preaching of the word of God is not enough for you, go and ask. You know what? They were. They were convinced. They went and asked. You could argue for yourself that you need to ask people. Why can't you see an eyewitness? Why can't you talk to an eyewitness of this risen Christ? Why can't you see Christ themselves? But we have eyewitness accounts. Right here in this book. All telling us the different perspectives of the resurrection. The Gospels, there's four of them right there. Four different perspectives, four different eyewitness accounts. You can add one more with Paul, because Paul gives his eyewitness account of being confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. We have stories about the risen Christ. Church, we have found an answer to the human problem. We have confirmation of the beautiful promises Paul just laid out for us. It is found in the person of Jesus Christ, and it is surely found in Him. So I say, when you fear death, when death grips you, when doubt rises up about any of this being real, when you find yourself sad or overwhelmed by the word around you, look to the empty tomb. Look to the person of Jesus Christ. It is there that you will find all the answers you need. You will find hope renewed. You will find joy made fresh again. But we're left with one final call by Paul. Conclusion. Verse 58. One final call after the finding your victory in Christ. Does Paul tell us? He doesn't just leave us with this bare doctrine of believing in the body of Christ. He says, now that you've heard it, 
now that you are secure in it. Verse 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now if this connection doesn't hit you, come talk to me afterwards. We'll start at the beginning. We'll go through the sermon all over again. This is the Christian life for all of us. If Christ has risen and death has been defeated, then we can always be steadfast in the face of hardship and depression. I'm not saying that you won't get depressed. I'm not saying that you won't be hardened. But we can always fall back on Christ. We can always be immovable in the face of oppression and persecution. You can think about the history of people who were deeply oppressed through slavery, through all things of that sort. What did they fall back on? They fell back on the gospel. They fell back on the stories of the Bible. That was what pushed them along to deal with it. Nothing can shake them. Nothing can shake us because the worst fear, the strongest enemy is death and death has been defeated. How could we falter when we know death is done? How can we be shaken when we know the strong man has lost his strength? So get up. Get up all of you and do the work of the Lord. You may ask, what is the work of the Lord? I painted a bleak picture of our bodies in this world in the second point. I said it's all chaff and dust in the wind. Waiting to be blown away. Someone who's giving me rapt attention would probably sit there and say, then what's the point of all this life? Why not just skip over it? Move ahead. Get after death. Get to the better part. Death, suicide, martyrdom, whatever it may be. Let's do it. I don't want to be in this false world. Paul says the work of the Lord is the answer to that problem. Go and do it. Go and proclaim that you have found the answer to the human problem. That is what Paul is describing. Go and proclaim. Paul describes earlier in the letter that when he is talking to the Corinthian church, he says, I am going to go and tell people about the gospel. He is doing the work of the Lord, is the phrase he uses. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he encourages the young men to continue to do the work of the Lord. As he goes about from city to city, he now tells the Corinthians, go and do the same. We need to get up and we need to tell people that there is joy found in the salvation of Jesus Christ. The outworking of the empty tomb is the proclamation of the gospel. That's all it is. The work of the Lord is bringing this message to all areas of this city, of this country, of this world. And not just by me as a pastor, by some great evangelist, it's by all of us. It's the Corinthian church. All who identify with this broken church in Corinth. We don't even need to go back a few chapters. It's been terrible in Corinth. And yet Paul says, keep going. Do the work of the Lord. We have a world out there that is struggling with this problem of death, this human problem. They are scared to death. It is the greatest fear placed in front of them. They have tried everything to overcome it, everything to understand it. And they hope and trust in promises that have no grounding whatsoever. But we have the answer. We have hope and joy. How could we not go out and tell people? 
Death has been defeated. We have found all the promises of God to be true. So church, we can be joyful. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Death is defeated and our salvation is secured. We can go now and tell this city how they no longer have to fear. Jesus Christ has brought them victory and secured it for them in the promises of God. Let's pray.